With that in mind, we're about to embark, as you see, on probably the most epic scripture reading I think we've ever done. We didn't plan it this way. It just sort of happened. You know, public health orders began the week that we had planned this sort of giant scripture reading. Get your bifocals on if you're going to read it in the bulletin or your, your magnifying glass or something. Uh, we were reading parts of Genesis 18 and 19. And if it's too small to read, of course, just follow along. John is going to come and read it for us. John, if you would now. Genesis 18, beginning at verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. 
And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the door, at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, <clears throat> get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, <clears throat> as morning dawned, the angels ur urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a, it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Thanks, John. We are in a series in the life of Abraham, 
And the life of Abraham is instructive to us because uh, we're seeing what a life of faith looks like. In the book of Romans, Abraham's called the father of everyone who believes. And so as we see Abraham go through these tremendous highs and these somewhat humiliating lows, uh, we, we kind of see what the life of faith looks like, what it looks like for us to believe. And again, of course, today's, in today's story, we arrive at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story is not exactly user-friendly. Uh, from Abraham haggling with God to the near sexual violence that happens in Sodom to the destruction of the people of these cities by God to the final thing with Lot's wife, it's, it's a somewhat confusing and troubling story. Not to mention there are sort of a, a mountain of things culturally uh, that are attached to the name Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom has become a verb for homosexual behavior. The names of the cities have become synonymous with evil behavior of many different kinds. There are movies named after them, uh, theater, you know, theater productions, books. And sort of in a weird way, this story is the most famous story in all of Abraham's life, even though he isn't really involved that much. So I tread with caution, but also understanding that there's a lot in the story I'm not sure that we understand very well. If, if we separate it from its context, if we sort of pluck it out um, and, and simply see God raining fire down on this unsuspecting city, well, I think, of course, we're going to be put off by that picture. To understand this story is to understand it in its context, to see, well, what's God teaching his people? What's he, what's he doing to Abraham? To see the kind of God who, who is just, who judges, and also who delivers, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah becomes a story that is a warning, it's an encouragement, and it's also a promise. Because remember, Genesis isn't sort of like an anthology of literature, like a random collection of stories. Um, it's telling one particular story of how God is creating a people for himself. And so Sodom and Gomorrah fit into this picture. Picture. Now, of course, the text we read was very long. I'm not going to have time to cover every single portion, but I want to take the story in three parts. Part one, I want to talk about the justice of God. Part two, I want to talk about the judgment of God. And part three, the deliverance of God. Now, if you happen to catch the sermon last week, uh, you'll know this already, but I'll catch you up all quickly. Abraham and Sarah had three unexpected visitors. God himself and his angels, they showed up and they made a promise to Sarah saying, about this time next year, if we visit again next year at this time, you're going to have a baby. And, it, and of course, they laughed at that promise, but it was the clearest and most concrete promise yet to come about the child. But the story actually doesn't end where Frankie left off last week. It, it leaves off or it continues in verse 16 uh, that John read for us that the men are still at the encampment. And as they leave, you know, Abraham and Sarah's tents, they look off in the distance towards Sodom. And sort of God has a conversation with the angels or with himself. And he's wondering, oh, should we tell Abraham what's about to happen? Should we tell him what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah? And God clearly decides. And the reason he decides to tell him is if you look at verse 19, it's so that Abraham can teach it to be able to teach it to his children and his household. See, in other words, Abraham needs to know what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah because it's going to be kind of lesson to him, an object lesson in how God judges sin. To be a good teacher, Abraham needs to know. And then God speaks to Abraham in verse 20, telling him that the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's so great, it's so grave that God intends to go down personally and see. Now, if you know a little bit about Genesis, you may remember the, the story of the Tower of Babel. It's in Genesis 11, if you want to go read it. But this is the same kind of language God uses there. The text tells us that God goes down to see what's happening at the Tower of Babel. Now, does an all-powerful, everywhere-present God need to physically show up in a place to see if people are sinning? Well, no, of course not. Even in Abraham's life, we've seen him notice Hagar crying alone in the wilderness. We, he's the God who saw Abraham stumble and be foolish in Egypt. He doesn't have to show up in person. 
But what's going on is the text is showing us is that the justice of God is not impersonal. It's not without cause. God carefully evaluates everything. He takes everything into account and he sort of judges from up close. Now, have you ever had a situation where uh, it appears that one party is at fault? Like you come around a corner and see uh, one person punching another or, you know, one toddler, you know, punching another. And upon first glance, it appears that, well, of course, the puncher is wrong. You know, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be hitting this person. But if you could see everything, you would have known that what came before uh, would change your opinion entirely. Maybe that person they were punching was going to shoot, you know, a third person or something. See, we can be people who deal out justice ineffectually because we don't see everything. We're bound by time and by space. We don't see all the beginnings and all the endings. But God's justice is not like ours because he sees and knows everything. He doesn't make mistakes in judgment. He's not biased. He's not prejudiced. So he sends these two angels down to see, uh, you know, to see what's going on in Sodom. And later, when, when he judges Sodom and Gomorrah, he does it with all the facts laid before him. Now, when Abraham learns that Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed, it says in verse 22 that he stands before the Lord. Now, the angels have departed. They're like walking down the hill towards Sodom or whatever. Uh, and it's just Abraham and God left sort of staring at each other. It's kind of some kind of ancient showdown or whatever. But Abraham asks in verse 22, it's an important question. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And I think this is the question we want answered in a story like the one we have today. I don't think it's so much that Sodom is destroyed, but it seems like God is being unfair and unjust as he destroys them. If you read carefully, Abraham's not upset by the fact that the wicked will be judged. He's like, hmm, kind of expected that. He wants to know what's going to happen if there's righteous people there. Are they going to get kind of caught up in the riptide of God's wrath? I think a lot of us are fine with, you know, wicked people being judged or destroyed. You know, if Sodom were full of, you know, Nazi zombies or something like that, be like, yeah, sure. Like, like blow that place up. That's fine. I don't, don't, we don't, we don't have any problem with that. We know those people, those are bad or whatever. Or if Sodom were full of unrepentant, you know, child molesters. I think most of us would be like, yeah, that's fine. Judge those people. Problem is the further we go down the ladder and each time, you know, if we were doing like a raise of hands, what about these people? What about those people? I think it gets harder because Sodom's not full of, you know, Nazi zombies. It's full of people. And so we're troubled by this question is, will God be just? If it's all terrible war criminals, great. If it's people who, you know, take two parking spots, you know, great, yep, get them to where we're totally fine with that. But what if there are a few good people mixed in? Is God really going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That doesn't seem fair. So Abraham sort of begins to bargain, starts with his high offer. What about 50? Would you spare the city for 50? And it, and it kind of, and God says yes. And then it kicks off this round of, of bargaining where Abraham negotiates all the way down to 10, though God doesn't seem to be negotiating that hard against him. Uh, but but at, the, at the end say, yeah, if there's 10, he'll spare the whole city. If there's 10 righteous, then he'll spare all the unrighteous. Now, we, as we see in the second part, um, there aren't 10. There aren't even five. There are four or maybe just three, depending on how you count Lot's wife. But if you read the next story after this one, uh, like that we didn't read this morning, even Lot and his daughters aren't all that righteous. There's, there's a weird account that comes next. But the question still haunts us. Will God be just? Will God judge rightly? I think most of us or, or some of us are perturbed by the Bible teaching that you have to know Jesus. You must trust in Jesus if you want to be saved. Because instinctively, we think about, you know, gracious, kind neighbors or, or family members or friends that are not Christians. And we're like, that doesn't seem fair that God's going to judge them. If God judges a really great person, he must not be just. 
But where does your conception of justice come from? Or on what basis do you judge God's judgment? That you and I as fallible humans bound by space and time, we would think that with our sort of not whole view of the world that we could be more just or more equitable or more fair than God who sees and knows all that we could do better? That doesn't seem right. Rather, God, he's, he's far better placed, as it were, to, to, to make right, good decisions. And furthermore, I can assure you that if God is as the Bible teaches, um, that, or, or if God is as the Bible teaches, and if we are created beings made in his image, then all of our best attributes are derivative. So what I mean is that the kindest human you've met, uh, the fairest judge you've ever known, the most merciful woman, the most generous man, um, they only have that characteristic as a, as a, a sort of piece of the original, it's a, it's a mere shadow of what God possesses. So therefore, God's more just than we can conceive of, more merciful, more kind, more generous. The judgment of who is righteous and who is unrighteous, it's left in the best possible hands. So if we can answer Abraham directly, we could say, no, God will not sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. He will not punish unnecessarily. The judge of all the earth will judge rightly, and you can bet on that. But that leads us to part two, the judgment of God. Now, as you've heard read, God does not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes down, he sees what is happening, and then he sends judgment and fire for their crimes. Now, there's some issues to wade through here. And first is, why Sodom and why Gomorrah? What do the scriptures tell us about what has gone wrong here? Why are they being judged in this unusual way? Why is this judgment passed on them and not on any one of the other Canaanite cities? Well, these cities have been mentioned before, back in Genesis 13, where Abram and Lot separate. The narrator at that point tells us, well, Lot went to settle near Sodom, which at that point, decades earlier, mind you, were already known as wicked great sinners. They were already notorious. They were already sort of famous for their sin. And then in Genesis 18, 20, in this story, multiple times God says he's heard the outcry against Sodom, meaning that there are people who are being oppressed there, mistreated, and they've been crying out to God. And then actually a few prophets comment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 3 verse 9, the prophet says, Sodom and Gomorrah were proud of their sin. They didn't want to change. Ezekiel 16, the prophet Ezekiel says, oh, these cities were proud. They were greedy. They hoarded food. They oppressed the poor and they were, they were, they were haughty, which means that that's not H-O-T-T-Y, mind you. They were haughty. Like they, they were proud of their pride. And then finally, in the New Testament, in Jude 7, it says Sodom was destroyed for its sexual immorality and unnatural desires. And so if we put all the pieces together, Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the scriptures, were comprehensively sinful. It's not just that, like this story told us, that they were sexually violent. They were sinful in their economic lives. They were greedy. They oppressed the poor. They, uh, they were sinful in their hospitality. They were trying to, to do harm to strangers. They were sinful in how they thought of themselves. They were puffed up with pride and they were, they were sinful to God. They had no regard for him, no thought for him, no care of his commands. And all this had been going on for decades, for a long, long time. And it's actually clear that Lot tries to restrain them. Perhaps he tried to restrain them for a long time, but they didn't listen to him. They didn't want any part. They're like, you're a sojourner. You're a, you're a kinda, you moved here recently. You're going to tell us how to behave. We're going to go worse on you. Biblically speaking, Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd sinned against God, they'd sinned against their neighbors, they felt no guilt, no shame, and had no intention of changing. You know, at times, this story has been made into a lesson about homosexuality. And to be clear, the Bible in Jude 7 and many other places is opposed to it, but this story is about far more than that. It wasn't just their sexuality, it was everything. And it wasn't just like they had a one-time bad event that they could recover from, it was, it was ongoing. They had unrepentant unchanging hearts. This is what had gone wrong in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And so God's waited and waited and been patient with them, hoping that his kindness would lead them to repentance. But at some point, the justice of God must be carried out. They're notoriously sinful. Now, second question is, well, why do they have to be destroyed? Maybe perhaps you're like, okay, I agree that uh, according to the Bible standards, according to God's standards, they were sinful. Doesn't this seem like an overreaction? <laughs> you know, death by, by sulfur and fire? Well, it's, there's an, actually, this isn't the first time in Genesis we've had an event like this. Before Abraham came along, uh, there's a great flood. Maybe you've heard about that, Noah and the ark and all that, that killed many more people than Sodom and Gomorrah. Later in the book of Joshua, the inhabitants of Canaan, many of them are killed fighting with Israel. And so we kind of need, don't need, just need to explain this event. We need to explain many different events. But all of them are demonstrating the consequences of sin, the wages of sin, the payout for sin is death. And in 2 Peter 2, Peter the apostle there says that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is an example for those who persist in sin. He says, this is where the road leads for those who don't turn to Christ that there will be a day of fire and judgment, that God's a holy God. He cannot abide sin. Sin's an offense against him, and it merits punishment, and sooner or later it will be judged. Now, a person might say, I'm sinning right now. (laughs) Nothing's happening. I'm sleeping with whomever I like. I'm as greedy as I want to be. Where's God's punishment? Well, for years, that's what Sodom and Gomorrah might have said. I'm sinning right now. Nothing is happening. The the greedy are going unpunished. The proud are succeeding. The haughty are thriving. The sexually immoral simply go home in the morning. But one day judgment came to those cities and there was no escape. Now, I'm not sure on an, an emotional or relational level how to live like this, how to live with this, pardon me. I think if we can be honest, most of us, like, we're like, we don't like this. <laughs> we, 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 don't, we don't want it to be this way. We don't want to sort of stop and consider a future uh, where this kind of judgment comes on people that we care about. So what do we do? Well, I can tell you this. You don't have to like it. I don't think that the Bible tells us you have to like it. It, it might make your stomach turn or it might make your insides kind of churn. And on some level, that's kind of good and right. Because this sort of end, it's something to sober us up, to make us flee from sin, to make us do whatever we can so that friends and loved ones don't experience this fate. But I know that difficulty. I feel it. So we don't have to like it, but we have to believe it. Because <laughs> this is a consistent testimony of the scriptures. From front to back, there is a God who judges unrighteousness that's not turned from. And of course, our world spins madly on. Sin goes seemingly unpunishment, unpunished. But one day the judgment of God will come just like it comes in this passage. Now, part three, the deliverance of God. Remember Abraham's question? Will you sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? We actually get an answer from God of that question, not not in words, but in deeds, because he sends his angels to the few righteous people remaining to rescue them. Now, we see Lot trying. He he gets the men to stay in his house, not not to spend the night in the public square. He knows what's going to happen there. He invites them in. He feeds them. He tries to protect them from the mob, even at the cost of his own daughters, if you notice that part. Now, ironically, it's the angels who end up protecting Lot. After they strike the men of the city with blindness, they realize the sin in Sodom, it's as bad as they feared, and they tell Lot in verse 12 and verse 13, it's time to go. Now, a couple little details I want to point out in the, in the end of this. First, in verse 14, when Lot goes to his daughter's fiancés, apparently they're engaged, and tries to get those men to flee with him, they think it's a big joke. And the coming judgment of God is often seen in a humorous light by those who don't believe. And frankly, why would it not be? <laughs> If you do not believe in a God, why would you believe in his judgment? 
to outsiders, Christians talking about these kinds of things who insist, uh, they seem to be like chicken little. We insist the sky is falling or will fall at some point, even though everyone knows the sky cannot fall. So you must not be surprised when, oh, I caught it in time. You must not be surprised uh, when people think us foolish or a kind of joke when we insist on the reality of God and his judgment. That's the expected reaction. It doesn't mean we don't try. It just means that we should be, uh, be sobered up to the, to the difficulty of persuading other people. Lot's sons-in-laws, they think he's making things up. But in verse 15, morning dawns, Lot's still there. The angels urge him to leave. But look at verse 16. It says, but he lingered. And then it says this, the men, the angels, they seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him outside and set him outside the city. When you live for a long time with the skeptical and the cynical and those who deny God, it's very easy for those kinds of attitudes to rub off on you. Lot's just had a visit from angels. <laughs> He's witnessed a miracle, yet he lingers in a city that he knows is going to be destroyed. It wasn't just that Lot was living in Sodom, but that Sodom was beginning to live in Lot. And perhaps if Sodom had not been destroyed, it might have destroyed Lot's faith. Now, we said this a few weeks ago, but a, a Christian must be careful to cultivate Christian friendship and community. Of course, you should love your neighbors and those around you. Of course, you should love your, any non-Christian family members. Of course, of course. But there must be community and support and encouragement from your church or fellow Christians, or else you too will be tempted to linger, or else the city of man will, will kind of worm its way deep into you. This, of course, is one of the effects of the pandemic that, that worries me most as a pastor, that worries our elders the most, is that the Christian community has just been dramatically reduced. When it's just you or it's just your family um, and, and, and no one else, um, that can be traumatic and very difficult for your spiritual life. It's just not how we were made to be. You need the community of God's people. You need, uh, you need larger groups. You need smaller groups. You need the support. But the longer you go alone, the harder it will be to resist. But even for those uh, for whom the city of the world has gotten in too deep and we still linger, God is merciful. And sometimes God sort of seizes us by the hand and drags us away from destruction. And that's good news. God is still merciful. Now, third detail, Lot's wife. We don't know her name. We don't really know much about her. We don't know if she was a Canaanite or something else. We don't know what she was thinking as they fled the city. She knew not to look back. The angels had told them, of course, don't look back. But then verse 26, it says, she looked back <laughs> and she became a pillar of salt. And the Hebrew there actually suggests not like an accidental glance, like, oh, whoops, I, I didn't mean to, but I, I stumbled or something. It, it's more on the lines of that she gazed intently. She vacillated. She longed for what was left. Her heart was not in the fleeing. It was in the city that was sort of back there. And she gets what the city got, which is judgment. And actually in Luke 17, Jesus is giving this speech and he actually says, remember Lot's wife. And then he adds this, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And by that, Jesus means that each of us face a choice in this life, that deliverance is offered to us. You've been given an opportunity to flee from destruction, but will you take it? If you seek to preserve your own life, you'll lose it, but if you give your life up to Christ, you will find it. If you let God sort of seize you by the hand and drag you from the city of destruction, uh, it's possible, but remember Lot's wife. Her heart wasn't in the leaving and the staying. So where is yours? Now let's summarize. This is what we've said so far. God's a just judge. He weighs everything in the balance. God sends judgment on those who do not repent, and God delivers the righteous. Now we have sort of one great problem. Throughout the scriptures, the people of God, and really all people, Christians, non-Christians, religious people, irreligious people, all of them are consistently compared 
to Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you know that? I read earlier from Isaiah 3 about Sodom and Gomorrah being proud and unrepentant. What Isaiah is actually saying in Isaiah 3 is that's how Israel and Judah were acting, God's chosen people. In Ezekiel 16, the verse I read from there, it's the same thing, the same kind of, of sexual immorality and greed and pride that Sodom and Gomorrah were famous for. They had come to Israel. In fact, Ezekiel 16 argues it's worse in Israel than it ever was there. And in Matthew 11, Jesus actually tells cities and towns in Israel that they are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, if I had done the miracles in Sodom that I did in Bethsaida, this Israelite town, they would have repented. Which means he's saying, you Israelites, you people of God, you have harder hearts than the people of Sodom. See, the great problem we have when we come to a text like this is we're comprehensively sinful, just like Sodom and just like Gomorrah. After all, Jesus tells us the lust of the heart is equal to actual sexual acts. The anger, the bitterness of the heart is equivalent to actual violence. So the problem we have is that there aren't any righteous people to be rescued. When God surveys the city of earth, there are no righteous people there. There aren't 50, there aren't 40, there aren't 30, 20, or 10. We all deserve to be swept away in God's judgment. So you see, if we put ourselves into the story, if you ever imagine, you know, what character am I here? We're not Abraham bargaining for the city. We're not living, we're not Lot living in the city and trying our best. We're actually the residents of the city. We are the people struck through with sin with judgment hanging over us. But in God's mercy, the story of the Bible is different from this story. What I mean is there's a person missing. Not that the story is wrong. The story sort of is what it is. Uh, But in the sweep of biblical history, there's someone missing. Think of it this way, and we're getting close to the end, I know. Uh, We see one righteous man standing outside the city, advocating for the city, praying to God on behalf of the city, but that wasn't enough. We see a second righteous man living in the city, trying to prevent its evil, but that wasn't enough. What we actually need is a third righteous man, not praying for the city, not trying to restrain the city, but a righteous man who would die in the place of the city. We need a righteous man who would give his life so the city might not experience the judgment of God. And that's the story of Jesus Christ, that God has surveyed the whole world. And according to Romans 3, he has concluded there are no righteous people here. Everyone's gone bad. Everyone's a little sheep that has wandered off to its own way. Everyone's heart is evil. And therefore, I will send my son, the righteous one, to die for them. Because justice must be done. The verdict will be passed, but the judgment will fall on Christ instead of on them. See, on the cross, what we understand is happening is that Jesus is taking the fire, the sulfur, the salt, the punishment that we had rightly earned. That all who trust in him might not end up as Sodom or Gomorrah. So I'm not sure where you stand this morning with Jesus. Even if you are a Christian, maybe it's just been a tough week. Maybe it's been a tough morning. Sin has gotten the better of you. I invite you all, take shelter under Jesus. His life for yours. He's the savior of you. He's the savior of the people of the world. Come to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for even difficult texts like this one that show us that what you are doing, help us to see our own hearts clearly. Help us to understand who you are and what you are doing in the world. Help us to flee to you. In Christ's name, amen.